Hello, everyone. This is Christian Massar again with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today, what I want to look at is the Ivan the Terrible film. Uh, the There are a number of films, of course, about Ivan the Terrible. What great historical figure would not have a movie about him? I want to particularly talk about Sergei Eisenstein's film about Ivan the Terrible, which came out in two parts. The first one came out in January 1945, and then the second part came out in 1958. There were plans for a third part, but that didn't come to fruition. Nikolai Cherkasov played Ivan the Terrible. I mentioned that there were some other films, of course. One of them was Tsar. In, that came out in the year 2009. And this is certainly not a sympathetic view of Ivan IV. For example, the it, it, Ivan IV is kind of portrayed as this person who's preparing for the end of the world. He has a very apocalyptic worldview. And of course, it shows a lot of the persecution that the real Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan Grozny, if you want to call him by the Russian uh, name, Ivan Grozny, or Ivan the Thunderous, rather than Terrible. But in this, in this version of, in this depiction of Ivan the Terrible, it, it really shows his brutal persecution of boyars and even the, metropolit- the metropolitan of the Muscovite Orthodox Church who, who opposes um, Ivan IV. And uh, the time context of that is the ni- 1560s during the Livonian War. And it does show a little bit of this, a little bit of this combat as well. And again, that's not a sympathetic view of Ivan the Terrible at all. But then there's another film called Ivan Vasilyevich Changes Profession, or Ivan Vasilyevich Izminyayet. Uh, this was a Soviet comedy from 1973 based on a play by Mikhail Bogolkov called Ivan Vasilyevich. So there are lots of films about this character, but I'm specifically focusing on perhaps the most famous one, Sergei Eisenstein's version of this film. So one thing you have to know about me being an historian and a uh, history podcaster and stuff, I'm not a film critic. So you don't expect any highbrow criticism of this film. Um, because the last movie I actually went to go see in the theaters with my wife was, what movie did we? Venom 2. Okay. So what, what did you think about Venom 2? Well, uh, Venom 2 was really interesting to watch because Mm. there was just a lot of action. Okay. And there was uh, a lot of villains too. And I really liked it. You liked it? Did you like it? Yeah, it was fun. The villains in that movie were actually better than uh, than the the villains in the movie I'm gonna talk about. They they were like really cheesy. Mm-hmm. I go into that, but yeah. So uh, Venom Two is not exactly uh, a highbrow film, but it was still enjoyable. So don't expect a whole lot of intellectual criticism necessarily, other than the historical stuff in this. So, but I do want to kind of look at Ivan the Fourth and kind of look at him in an historical context, not Ivan the Fourth himself, but kind of looking at sort of interpretations of this film. I personally, I will come out right out in the middle here and say that um, his this film is a perfect depiction of Stalinist Russia because again, again, the first part came out in January nineteen forty-five, and what was happening then? World War Two was coming to an end, but there were still a few months left. The war on the Eastern Front was by no means over. And so, and also there's a lot of uh, the, some of the themes that we go into as well that I want to go into with the, with the film a little bit. And it's a perfect um, analogy or perfect depiction of Stalinist Russia, kind of portraying Ivan IV as kind of a proto-Stalin almost. There are a few other interpretations, and we'll go into those. But first, let's look at Sergei Eisenstein, the man himself, for a little bit. 
Eisenstein was born in Latvia in 1898. During the Russian Revolution, he joined the Red Army and got involved in propaganda work. He got involved in theater and eventually film. James Billingdon wrote that theaters became churches, almost, in the early communist period. And so it made sense that uh, someone who was involved in propaganda would want to go into theater and then eventually start making movies. The first film that Sergei Eisenstein made was Strike in 1924. It's, it eschewed traditional heroes, but rather it glorified workers and managers. It shows a strike being stopped, but the so-called workers' consciousness is, is increased. And so according to Ron Brindley, this was a prime example of socialist propaganda. And also we look at 1926, when also Eisenstein worked on the Battleship Potemkin film. And in 1926, that same year, he started working on October. And this was this film contained a lot of socialist-compatible imagery. So it was against Tsarism and religion. Stalin, in fact, interfered in this film, uh, having Lenin's speeches changed in, in the movie. And as the general secretary of the party by this time, uh, Stalin... You know, Stalin's influence is also visible that uh, Trotsky's role in the film is diminished. For by this time, he had become an enemy of Stalin. Remember, they Stalin and Trotsky had different views on how to proceed with the revolution. So films such as these are kind of examples of socialist realism almost in a way, or they're connected with socialist realism. Using art to preach the good of socialism, preach the good of communism, right? And so... But then eventually, Eisenstein actually went to the capitalist West. He actually spent some time in Hollywood at Paramount Studios. But this didn't last long. His two proposed projects were, according to Ron Brindley, quote, critical of American capitalism, and Paramount decided it would be best to terminate Eisenstein's contract, end quote. Then Eisenstein returned to the USSR to a much more strict artistic environment. And this is where ideology became very important in his artwork. Under Stalin, this is where socialist realism comes to the fore, preaching again revolution and realism put together, making the revolution real. Alexander Nevsky was his next big project, and in which the Russian prince of Novgorod defends against the German Teutonic Knights. This film came out in 1937, so this was when Nazism was starting to build and the threat of Nazism started becoming a bit more clear. And for this film, Stalin gave Eisenstein the Order of Lenin. But this is where politics also got involved again. In 1939, there was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, sort of a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And the film was actually withdrawn. So it's interesting that the film is made and released in 1937, and it's talking about Germans invading Russia or Novgorod and, and so on. But then 1939 comes along and it's like, well, we're withdrawing this film that shows Germans as the bad guys. But then, in 1941, the film was released again. And of course, this was when Nazi Germany did an about-face and ignored the pact and attacked the Soviet Union. So, and starting World War II on the Eastern Front, or the Great Patriotic War in Russia. And then the next film, Ivan the Terrible, and this is the one we're going to talk about. So, by now, Sergei Eisenstein has been valuable in creating Soviet film, Soviet propaganda in the form of the movie. And here comes here he comes with the movie Ivan the Terrible. It was filmed in Alma Alta, and again the first part was released in January 1945, shortly before World War II ended. 
And again, he got he got a Stalin prize for this one. And in 1946, part two was finished. But it wasn't released, actually, until 1958, five years after Stalin had passed away. Eisenstein himself had died in February 1948. And part three was, again, never released. Let's talk a little bit about the film. The film starts with the coronation of Ivan the Terrible. And it shows hostility from foreign powers, actually. Foreign dignitaries are there from Europe and Kazan. And um, they're showing hostility towards him. They're showing a little bit of hostility and kind of watching uh, Ivan the Terrible as he's being coronated. And the other parts of the film, include the other parts of part one, include the conquest of Kazan in 1552. And then later on, in the end of part one, you also see the people begging Ivan the Terrible to come and um, rule again. This is when he had left. Uh, Moscovy, and then he had he had left, and then the people came to him begging for him to come back because the you know the treacherous boyars are are ruling ruling the country now, and we want you back. And then part two is essentially a, a film about subterfuge and intrigue, and with treacherous boyar families and so on that Ivan the Terrible needs to strengthen the state and strengthen the government against these treacherous forces. And uh, so that's essentially it. I believe that in part three, there were plans to have him uh, conquer Riga and, and get Moscovy out to the Baltics. But again, this part of the film was not released. Let's talk a little bit about the characters. First, Ivan IV, or Ivan the Terrible. This character is portrayed as kind, and he loves the Russian people and his wife, Anastasia. And, but he hates, of course, the scheming boyars, the nobles that are going to destroy Moscovy. They're going to destroy Russia. He has an aggressive foreign policy, which, again, um, has shows him taking Kazan in 1552. And he is a determined ruler, but he experiences doubts. And Stalin actually, Stalin didn't really like part two in some ways of the film because it showed... Ivan the Terrible being kind of like, yes, he did need to do something. He did need to go against these scheming boyars, but he was kind of seen as a doubting, doubting Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet, you know, the character from the Shakespearean um, play where Hamlet, he wants to kill his uncle, but he doesn't do it until the very end. And so Stalin kind of saw Ivan the Terrible in this film as someone who is ah, a little bit doubtful. You know, why not just do it? <laughs> go ahead and do it. According to this view of Ivan as a Hamlet, Ivan's mistake was not killing five feudal families, which led to the Russian time of troubles, or the smuta, which, um, which happened after Ivan IV's death, with lots of rivalries, succession problems, uh, the Polish invasion, and until the Romanov dynasty was chosen to be Russia's second ruling family. And in some ways you see a little bit of a proto-communist idea in Ivan IV here, where there's one quote, we will help the workers, the shopkeepers, and the craftsmen. Um, and also, he offers anyone of humble background to join the Uprichniki, or the force that Ivan the Terrible used in, in real history to go after and crack down on the boyars. And he also talks about a great new cause, the great new cause, right? So this, this would make sense in a communist um, dictatorship like Stalin's, where it's like, okay, we have a great new cause that we're doing here, and let's have everyone of humble background join the forces to make this happen, right? So, you know, you can see a little bit of a 
rally the flag, rally around the red flag kind of thing here. But of course, in a 16th century context. What about what about the boyars? The the boyars in the movie they're 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 scheming. They're dangerous, and they're described as foes of Russian unity and even more dangerous than arrows. And you know they want to share power between them and the Tsar. And so you know, is there is there kind of this image here of the portrayal of a dangerous democracy? Boyars are also corrupt. They care only for themselves and not the Russian nation. So watching the film, you get the sense that these guys, you know, they're, they're your stereotypical 19, 1940s bad guy, uh, or movie bad guy. They're, um, you know, they're your typical guy that's a bit over the top. Though, of course, there's nothing good about them. There's nothing redeeming about them. Um, they're all bad and, and everything like this. All right, so that, those are the boyars. What about the foreigners? The Europeans in the film conspire against Ivan the Terrible, and they do not want to recognize him. But this is where, again, I, 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 get this, I bring up this idea of the, the silly bad guy. Some look absolutely ridiculous with frills going out like, you know, 20 feet out from them. <laughs> of course, that's an exaggeration, but they're, they're really silly looking sometimes. And um, Germans are explicitly called enemies, as are Livonians, and, you know. Germans being called explicitly being called enemies that um, that makes a lot of sense you know being being that uh, Soviet Russia was at war with Nazi Germany at the time this film was released Elizabeth Elizabeth in England is actually an ally so but you know there's a little bit of a parallel there as well but um, between the UK and the USSR they were also allies at this time and Kazan which Ivan the Terrible eventually conquered is a backstabbing, treacherous state. They who would that kills their own people to hurt Russians. It's you know sort of a dangerous, treacherous East. It's uh, very interesting in the in that part of the film where it depicts the uh, conquest of Kazan. You see Russian soldiers singing a song of misery while on campaign. It's 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 interesting in that way. And Anastasia, Ivan the Terrible's wife, says at one point in the film this. If you reject central authority, the foreigners will control you, right? So the, here again, the foreigners, they're kind of seen as this um, enemy, and then the boyars are kind of a fifth column, you know? The foreigners are out there, the, the, both uh, from, Kazan, from the continent of Kazan, but also the, also the Western Europeans, they are going to use the boyars against you. So you can definitely see some, some parallels there with uh, this idea of, Germans being an enemy of Russia and um, and Kazan being an enemy of Russia and and at this time and then when the film was released the Russians were fighting the Germans so and England was an ally and and so you can definitely see those see those parallels as well um, and also Stalin remembered before World War II there were many purges uh, within the Soviet system uh, affecting almost everybody. And so, um, and you know, this hunt for traitors and every, everybody like that, everybody would be uh, denounced or killed or rehabilitated later if they somehow survived the purges. And so, and then Ivan the Terrible, the film is talking a lot about traitors and their foreign um, either handlers or supporters, you know. So there's a lot of parallels there. But probably the biggest parallel that I see between Ivan the, Ivan the Terrible film and Stalinist Russia 
was nationalism. This is just like the film Alexander Nevsky, which was released again when the, the Nazi, when the Nazi Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941. Nationalism became a very important, important part of Russian propaganda in World War II, or Soviet propaganda, I should say, in, in World War II. And especially Russian nationalism. So Ivan the, For Ivan the Terrible is an understandable character to have in a wartime movie. World War II's Stalinist Russia looked back to Russian national heroes such as Alexander Nevsky, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great. And um, also Russian enemy, old Russian enemies were also brought up again in, in uh, Soviet propaganda during the war. For example, Teutonic Knights were mentioned and Tatars and classic enemies were coming back into, brought back into public memory. Isaac Deutscher, quoted by Kristen Thompson, said that Stalin's idea of socialism in one country also contributed to this, this sense of, of Russian nationalism within the Soviet Union. At the time, there were other films, such as about the time of troubles when Poland had invaded Moscovy shortly after Ivan the Terrible's death. Uh, a movie about this period called The Smuta in Russian uh, came out in November 1939. There were also films about the Napoleonic Wars in 1939, 1941, and 1944, which shows Russia repelling Western or otherwise foreign attacks. So Ivan the Terrible, the film, fit into this mood of, of nationalism, reviving Russian heroes. So imagine if, if America was invaded, you know, what heroes would we, would we see American films bringing up during wartime? You know, would we see a lot of films about George Washington or uh, maybe perhaps Abraham Lincoln or FDR, something like that? You know, that would be, this is kind of a similar, a similar situation. When the Soviet Union was invaded, heroes such as Ivan the Terrible became prominent in, in the public space. So when we look at Ivan the Fourth, he's seen as a national unifier. You know, Ivan, Ivan Grozny is seen as uniting the country and thwarting the, quote, self-seeking principalities or the, the boyars. Um, and Russia is depicted as a nation state. You know, Ivan is called the, as he was called in real life, the Tsar of Moscow and the absolute sovereign of all the Russias. So, and he calls for a single united state without the boyars in the film. And... And also, when it comes to the Russian nationalism, there's also mention of the Third Rome, which a priest named Philotius, you know, he proclaimed this idea around 1500. And whenever you're talking about Russian nationalism, you always hear about the Third Rome. Uh, this idea that the First Rome fell to barbarians and invasion in it, and the First Roman Empire collapsed. Then the Second Rome, Byzantium, collapsed because of due to heresy and um, apostasy. And then at that and then at that point, Muscovy became the third Rome, and then there would not be a fourth one. So this kind of brought about an apocalyptic worldview as well, right? So the, like if if Muscovy falls, the world is ending. You know, this is the only state for the one true church. Right, so that that was an idea that came around in around Ivan the Terrible's time in real life, and Avukum and the old believers in the mid seventeenth century also believed this. So when they saw the Third Rome falling into apostasy, according to their view, they did the same thing. They they were feeling the same thing. They thought the end of the world was coming. They had a bit of an apocalyptic worldview as well. 
And in, in the nationalism, in the film, you see people loyal to Ivan commit themselves wholly to the cause of national unity. There's even one character who says that I will literally sell my soul and he consecrates his soul to no matter what, if this is wrong, I don't care. I am here for you. I am here for the state, right? And so those are where nationalism comes into play in this film. Nationalism is a natural theme. When your country is invaded, it's a natural thing to portray that in a, in a film. Going back to history, bringing up those, these themes into modern, modern memory or modern sight, I suppose. What about religion? Because a lot of times, and this is not unique to Russia at all, um, when you talk about nationalism, religion is usually not far behind. So in, um, in the film, superstitious religious people are denounced, actually. And priests are seen as being in league with the boyar, the treacherous boyars. But it's very interesting that even though, yes, the superstitious religious people are denounced and there are priests that are helping the enemy, but religion itself is not mocked or rejected. Ivan himself is, being, is shown as being religious in the film. And he also says at this point, at some point, quote, I show no malice towards good Orthodox Christian Muscovites. So what about the context? Well, of course, for one thing, the real Ivan IV was a religious Orthodox Christian. And also at the same time, the film was released during World War II. And this was when communist prohibitions against religion were relaxed. In fact, the church was allowed to, allowed to operate. The church was allowed to give liturgy. The church was allowed to donate money to the war effort. It was allowed to pray for the pray for Russian soldiers. It was allowed to pray for the war effort to go well for the Soviet Union. So it was still able to operate in this atheistic Marxist state. So this is also a key as well. Yes, superstitious religious people are seen as bad or or mocked or whatever. And but religion itself is not rejected. In, in the film. And this ties in with what was going on at the time, right? Religion being released a little bit. And according to Kristen Thompson, writing in 1977, Ivan the Terrible was the sort of first unifier of Russia as well. So this film is talking about that unifying the state around himself, around a central government. This is where Ivan IV in the movie is depicted sort of like a proto-Stalin. Uh, they're definitely comparable. For one, they are, they are central authorities in their respective rushes. And they're both willing to do whatever it takes to keep the safe around that central authority. Um, they both conduct purges. Uh, of course, under Ivan the Terrible, it was under the Oprichniki, or using the Oprichniki. And Stalin with the NKVD, with his great purges as well, are great terrors. And both in the name of preserving or strengthening the state. And both Ivan IV and Stalin had suffered or were repelling attacks from the West in, you know, Germany, uh, Livonia, or in Ivan the Terrible's case from, Tatar, uh, from the Tatars, more to the East. But this is where I believe the film is much more of a case of a, or an example of Russian nationalism. And which is interesting because remember how we just talked about nationalism and how Russian nationalism became a, a strong force during World War II. Um, <clears throat> it became a strong um, part of, of you know, public dialogue or public propaganda during World War II. 
In the film, yes, there are some themes that one could say is, are communist, you know, bringing the common man into the Prichniki and so on. But at the same time, nationalism is the stronger force in this film. Because there's not so much about communism per se. In fact, during Stalin's, when Stalin was criticizing part two of the film, remember when I said that uh, he saw Ivan the Terrible as sort of a hesitant Hamlet figure instead of just get it done. The Uprichniki, he also complained that the Uprichniki were seen as debauched and thuggish instead of as a progressive bodyguard of Ivan the Terrible. Um, so this was kind of a kind of a situation as well where the 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 film is much more nationalist it's more focusing on russia rather than communism it might not be as propaganda as, um, as an example of socialist propaganda um such as um, his eisenstein's previous films like strike or october and another another point that makes ivan the fourth like like a stalin figure in this way, by Ron Brinley, Ron Brinley suggested that Ivan in the in the movie, he's not depicted as a villain, right? He is, again, depicted as someone who did what he had to do. Um, he is the main hero of the movie. He's not the main, uh, he's not the main anti-hero of the film. Sort of like, remember how I mentioned that film from 2009, Tsar, where Ivan the Terrible is seen as truly evil. Uh, but here, he's not. In this film uh, by Sergei Eisenstein, he is not seen as a bad guy. He's just a man who does what he must with some hesitance, yes. And remember, what is what are some aspects of a hero? But sometimes you have heroes in, in stories or in movies or whatever. They have to do things that are very, very difficult, but they hesitate to do it. While the ones who are seen as truly evil are the ones who will not hesitate to do that, such things. So you can develop some, maybe a bit of a sympathy for Eisenstein's Ivan. And he's sort of seen as a Machiavellian prince, not a maniac as Ivan the, Ter Ivan the Terrible is often seen and portrayed. He is also betrayed in the, in the film as well by boyars. And one could make a connection too, just like Stalin was by Trotsky. You know, Stalin and Trotsky were, um, were allies at first. And then later on, as time went on, they had different ideas of how the revolution should proceed. And then Trotsky was... Um, was had to leave the Soviet Union and was eventually ex was eventually assassinated in 1940. So, so there are some parallels there that you can see between Ivan the Terrible and Stalin, the nationalism, central figure, central authority, and the willingness to do whatever it took to keep the state safe. And Stalin, in fact, did also like comparing himself to Ivan the Fourth, according to Arthur Adams in his biography of Stalin. And this is also consistent with Soviet views of Ivan the Terrible. Under Stalin, Ivan the Fourth was seen more of a seen was more of a statesman, not a maniac. You know, when we read history books about Ivan the Terrible in the West, we will look at him. He had mental problems. There, are a lot of people will talk about how he was. Um, he saw violence as a child and all this kind of stuff, and that affected him greatly. And then when he came to power, he took that trauma or whatever and and <laughs> shot the trauma out to everyone else uh, in extreme ways. So you will see those kinds of. Those are some of the interpretations you see in the Stalinist Soviet Union. You will see him more as a as a statesman. Kristen Thompson also refers to the work of Robert Payne, who also worked on a biography of Stalin. And Payne 
also referenced in turn Nikolai Cherkasov's own autobiography. Cherkasov, of course, again, being the actor who played Ivan the Terrible in Eisenstein's film. Cherkasov met with Stalin along with Eisenstein. Payne included this quote from Cherkasov's autobiography. Notes of an actor, these words about this meeting. Quote, speaking of the state activity of Ivan the Terrible, Comrade Stalin pointed out that Ivan IV had been a great and wise ruler who protected the country from the infiltration of foreign influence and had tried to bring about the unification of Russia. In particular, talking about the progressive activity of Ivan the Terrible, Comrade Stalin emphasized that Ivan IV had been the first to introduce a foreign trade monopoly in Russia, adding that Lenin had been the only one to have done this after him. Comrade Stalin also remarked on the progressive role played by the Oprichnina, saying that Maliuta Stokurotov, the head of the Oprichnina, was a great Russian general who fell heroically in the war with Livonia. While referring to Ivan the Terrible's mistakes, Joseph Vissarionovich, or Stalin, remarked that they partly consisted of a failure to liquidate the five remaining feudal families and the failure to fight the feudal lords to the end. Had he done this, Russia would have had no time of troubles, or smuta. At this point, Joseph Vissarionovich added humorously, There God stood at Ivan's way. Ivan the Terrible would liquidate one feudal family, one boyar clan, and would then repent for a whole year and pray for forgiveness of his sins, when instead he should have been acting with increasing determination. This was Stalin's view of Ivan the Terrible, according to the actor Cherkasov. So, so this is where, this is why Stalin would say, look, why, we shouldn't have Ivan the Terrible be depicted as a Hamlet. He shouldn't be this hesitant hero. He should have been this hero that eliminated one family and went on to the next one. So, there we are. So, according to this narrative, Ivan IV was brutal and nasty, but there was a reason for it. The film's depiction of him as brutal, yes, but again, it has a reason to do so. Even in 1968, well after the second part was released, Michael Chernyevsky compared Ivan IV to other political theorists or other princes at the time, like, like Machiavelli. And Eisenstein compared Ivan IV to such as the Medici and Henry VIII of England. Now, here is where the film is not a perfect fit with World War II and Stalinist Russia. Yes, there were plans for to show the Baltic conquest in part three of the film, which Ivan the Terrible actually did lose, but the film focused on the conquest of Kazan in 1552. However, this was a major event leading to the eventual Russian Empire's eastward expansion. And also... The appeal to the Third Rome idea, that wasn't really a, a communist idea, of course. Again, referencing Russian nationalism, not Stalin and not World War II. One aspect in which the film does not really parallel Stalin that much and World War II is, is the idea of the Oprichniki, you know, Stal or Ivan the not Stalin's, Ivan the Terrible's uh, enforcers, those who went after the boyars. Um, Soviet historians said that uh, talked about the Oprichniki destroying the boyars and the privileged, and Stalin, of course, did also did his own form of of purges and collective uh, purging of not only um, of the military and um, political people inside the USSR, but also um, the kulaks, the rich peasants that were kind of scapegoated as 
stealing from the state and stealing from everybody. And of course, the awful policy of trying to collectivize farms so that they could produce more for the cities and also confiscating of grain, which led to the Holodomor in, in Ukraine and also a famine in Kazakhstan as well. So, you know, there is that. But the film, again, class structure and struggle is not really touched upon that much. Um, the Oprichniki, yes, they did go after the boyars, yes, in the film, as they did in history. But Ivan IV is the central character. It's not the worker, it's not the peasant, it's not the little guy that's the big man of this, uh, of this film. So that's the sort of interpretation that Ivan IV in the film is a, is a proto-Stalin. So kind of a Stalinist interpretation, if you will. But then there's another interpretation that is also out there. In that, in fact, Ivan IV or Ivan the Terrible, the film, is a criticism of the Soviet system. According to Shant Bavramian, who on his YouTube channel, The Audiovisual Essayist, he said that Eisenstein's film implicitly criticizes the Soviet Union, but also praises it at the same time. Huh? Or by praising it or appearing to praise it, he's implicitly criticizing it. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. Bavramian refers to the ideas of Slavoj Žižek, talking about subversive affirmation. So what is this? So, according to Zizek's idea, you reenact something or an ideology to, quote-unquote, destabilize the meaning. Quote, this sparks discourse around the ideology itself, which turns it in against itself. This is central to criticism, according to the idea. So, I don't know. You could use this, uh, you could use one way to describe it, that uh, being an edgelord, to be really edgy and to get people talking about something, and thus hurting or criticizing that thing you're talking about, or at least opening up the discussion. Sh you're showing how obscene or obsess excessive something is to expose its weaknesses. So, according to this idea, in the film, there's a lot of metaphor and symbolism. It's not part of the story, but it shows something about it. And here, Behramian goes into the film and looks at the techniques that go beyond Ivan the Terrible story and touches on Eisenstein's contemporary time of the Stalinist regime. So it focuses, the film focuses excessively on Ivan and affirms totalitarianism, which were part of Ivan IV's and Stalinist governmental systems. Okay, so then this shows what had to be suppressed. Democracy, foreign interference or threats, enemies, both internal and external, within that system. So by showing the excesses or focusing so much on Ivan and the centrality of the system in Moscovy, then in that way you're also showing, you're comparing it to the modern Stalinist system and then showing the excesses of that as well and then therefore opening it up for discussion and debate. That's what this idea is about. The example that Behramian uses in the film, the uh, example of excess, is the coronation scene at the very beginning of part one. You see Russian Orthodox Church art in the background while European diplomats wait for Ivan the Terrible in the church building. And in the back, Behramian focuses the, our attention on the fresco of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Ivan IV, in this way, will resurrect Russia or Moscovy and destroy all enemies in his way. This is foreshadowed by the fresco. Jesus resurrected Lazarus because of faith. In the film, 
Totalitarian states reject or crush all of those without faith in the leader or the system, like Ivan the Terrible does to his enemies in the film, both Kazan and the, boy, and the treacherous boyars. And then also, of course, Stalin tried to do the same thing. Ivan is central physically in the scene of the coronation. And so, according to Bayramian, quote, he's bringing together the Russian state around himself, centrally around himself. The regime is centered around Ivan the Terrible, and then eventually, centuries later, when Eisenstein was making this film, the state or the regime was centered around Stalin. So in this way, according to, according to this idea of subversive affirmation, Eisenstein was affirming the USSR's system, quote-unquote, frustrating boundaries of what is acceptable to portray and talk about within the regime. So it's meant to start a discussion. Look at how everything is around Ivan. It's all about him. And now today, when we're watching this film, when the film was released, it was all about Stalin, right? I have to admit, I don't really buy this idea of subversive affirmation. It's interesting. The more you show something, the more you expose it to criticism. Okay, I get it. But at the same time, it's... You know, the idea is that the film is itself patriotic. Notice how we talked about, uh, notice how we talked about nationalism and how the film was more of a Russian nationalist film. It didn't really talk about communism so much per se. I've always, you know, I've said before that I think this is more of a Russian nationalist film, not a communist propagandic film, right? So, and this was also during World War II as well. This is when patriotism made sense. Ivan IV also show, had a positive image. He's, again, he's not a madman and, and villains, like I said before, they're truly characterizations of cartoon villains, exaggerated faces, crazy costumes, and stuff like that. So, and, and also the film didn't show excessive cruelty. Remember Stalin's comments comparing Ivan IV in part two as being like a Hamlet, um, a weakly, oh, like someone who did something to protect the state, yes, but he was weak, he was hesitant, right? That was Stalin's criticism of Ivan the Terrible in part two of the film. So, I don't know, I don't really buy the subversive um, affirmation, but I don't really see it that way in a, in a sense. I suppose one, one thing that you could, um, I suppose one thing you could, you could say in, in favor of that is, if Eisenstein was anti-communist, if he was criticizing, well, maybe not anti-communist, but anti-Stalinist, um, you know, maybe he could have been afraid to be overt in his criticism. So then he's showing the excess of Ivan IV and then, you know, and all of that, and then showing how, um, how excessive it was and then also transferring that to Stalinism. But again, looking at the time context, looking at how the... Um, looking how it was during World War II and Russian nationalism was also a big thing at that time and the film kind of was part of that as were other films. I don't, yeah, I don't really buy that as, as this was a case of actually trying to criticize the Stalinist system. I think this may be adding another layer of meaning to something which mm, I'm not sure is really there, at least as, as from what I can see. A third possible interpretation is that of Stalinist cosmopolitanism, which Katerina Clark wrote about in 2012. Among the things she mentions, 
as proof of this is the Armorillus Sphere, which in one scene casts a shadow over Ivan and at night. And she quotes this, she says this, quote, The device's provenance includes ancient China and ancient Greece, and it came to Europe via the Middle East. So she's suggesting that this symbol shows that Russia, Muscovy, was perhaps opening up or making connections with the West. She references the fact that such a design, uh, such a, a device would not be in Muscovy at the time of Ivan the Terrible, and Clark notices that Eisenstein probably knew this, yet he included this device in the film anyway, while at the, at the same time, in the same time period, Clark mentions that many of these devices were available in Elizabethan England. So she says, quote, Is Eisenstein, by including the unlikely Armorillus sphere in Ivan's chamber, seeking to enhance the image of medieval Russia and therefore challenge the historical cliché about Russia that the Achilles heel, so to speak, of its development is that it never experienced a renaissance and consequently missed out on being as advanced as Western Europe and, in the eyes of some, was not European at all? End quote. So that's a very interesting point that with this use of this device that wouldn't be available in Muscovy at the time, but was available in West in other parts of Europe, is Eisenstein trying to make medieval Russia look more advanced than it was? There was a book that um, Clark mentions by a man named Robert Vipper, who wrote a book about Ivan the Terrible in 1922. And apparently Stalin was very impressed with this um, with this book about Ivan the Terrible, that Eisenstein had to use it in writing the script for his movie. And the book also mentioned how people coming to Moscovy from abroad during Ivan the Terrible's rule were, quote, extremely impressed by the physical grandeur of the capital. And Ivan the Terrible was also seen as being a, quote-unquote, consummate diplomat. So in this way, you know, one could say that according to this interpretation, Eisenstein is trying to show Ivan the Terrible as being a, a Renaissance ruler, again, making him a contemporary of other European rulers like Medi the Medici and Henry VIII, or even perhaps Queen Elizabeth. And in this way, Ivan must open up Muscovy to the West, um, eventually by trying to take Riga and Revel, which he did not, but Peter the, Peter the First, Peter the Great, did two centuries later, especially with the building of St. Petersburg and his great grand embassy across, across Europe. Um, and Ivan the Terrible had also opened up Muscovy to the east with the conquest of Kazan, of Kazan and the allowing the colonization of and the opening up of Siberia, which is not depicted in the film, but the conquest of Kazan is. So according to these references to the Renaissance, Russia was opening up to Western Europe. This created, quote, according to Clark, a more cosmopolitan purview for Soviet Russia. Uh, th this is interesting. Again, it's interesting. Um, noticing that, in, and it is very interesting that Clark is referencing these ideas that many people saw Russia as not European at all at that time. Um, there, that's a big big thing when you're in Russian studies you will often come across people who will say that they were that the Russian state is just a, a successor to the Mongols and it's not truly European they're not truly Slavic and I think a lot of these theories frankly are are based more on historical memory rather than actual fact you know Russia is a European state most of its power is what is is what is considered Europe 
right? So that is the case. And most of their focus in foreign policy and everything has been towards towards Europe. That's been the, the area where they've operated the most. Of course, they've also been in Central Asia. They've been in uh, even in North America a little bit in, during the imperial period and so on. But I think it's very interesting that Clark says that, well, perhaps Eisenstein is trying to challenge those narratives out there. That's saying that um, Russia was just a, a really bad place and everything like that, that Moscovy was a really bad place and no, no advanced culture and things. So I think that's an interesting idea, but I don't think that is the key point of this film. You know, you don't see in the film, you don't see the theme. Again, you don't see the theme of trying to open up to the West. If you wanted to make a movie, if you were in Eisenstein's shoes and you wanted to talk about Russia opening up to the West, I would have done something more like this. If I had the ability to do so, I would have rather made a movie about, again, Peter the Great going to... Uh, going to Holland, going to England, learning how to build ships, doing all those things, outreach, and uh, going to the German quarters, going to the foreign quarters in in uh, uh, in in Moscow, and then also building Saint Petersburg, which would be kind of a gateway to the West, and then was also made Russia's capital. That's what I would have done. Going to Ivan the Terrible, and then focusing on. Uh, intrigue and dealing with Kazan and um, dealing with treacherous boyars and intrigues and suppressing uh, boyars and so on. That's not a film about opening up to the West. So I don't quite buy this Renaissance interpretation, but it is an interesting question that uh, Clark asks. With regards to Ivan the Terrible's relations and connections with the West, James Billingdon, in his book Icon and the Axe, noted that Quote, worldly Western contemporaries often express admiration for his, Ivan the Terrible's, forceful rule. And he had mentions that many Westerners had also even uh, served Ivan the Terrible, actually. And, and that's an, a very interesting thing. In the Imperial Russia, there were also army commanders with Western roots, actually. So that's, that's a very interesting um, thing. And one thing I really want to read more about are Western or contemporary Western views on Muscovy at the time, like seeing how Moscow was being was being built and their impressions of it. But Billingdon doesn't personally compare Ivan the Terrible to a Western uh, ruler like like the Tudors or the Bourbons is the one the one he mentions, the English the the English and the French royal families. So, for example, he says that. Many uh, Western observers saw that Ivan the Terrible was just so cruel that this was, quote, more extreme than anything they had ever seen. So it's, um, it's, so it's a very interesting idea there. Billingdon subscribes to the view that, yes, uh, Ivan the Terrible was moving toward Russia towards the West a little bit um, in trying to, uh, in the, during the Livonian Wars, for example, but also trying to preserve a lot of Muscovite tradition. So yes, engaging with the West and um, waging war on the West, but not really, but truly making Muscovy a local local Russian power and not a, a Western state. Yet Billingdon also wrote later in his book that while this is true, he was uh, fighting in the Livonian War with, with a, a more Western part of Europe, but Ivan the Terrible increased 
interaction with the West as well. Uh, Billington says, quote, It is doubly ironic that the point of no return in opening up Russia to Western influences occurred under this most ostensibly xenophobic and traditionalist of Tsars. So remember how I just mentioned that he wanted to keep Muscovite tradition alive, and also he centered the, the Muscovite state around himself, creating uh, Russia. But then, yet it was Ivan, quote, Billingdon, who began the large-scale contacts with the northern European Protestant nations, which profoundly influenced Russian thought from the mid-16th to the mid-18th century, right? So it's, it's kind of this double double irony, right, as, as he puts it. Yes, creating a strong Muscovite state, Muscovite tradition, but also opening up to the West in a way that allows ideas to come in. So in this way, this would possibly support the idea that the film was talking about opening up to the West and showing that Muscovy at that time wasn't just some kind of backward, brutal, um, you know, Tatar-like or um, barbaric state, but also opening up. There are some very important examples of this, of Western influence or Western interaction or Western entrance, <laughs> let's say, into Muscovy of Ivan the Terrible's time. So in the early, um, early 1550s, Ivan the Terrible was also giving territorial rights and uh, allowance to England in Archangel, in the White Sea port of Archangel, which is um, north of Moscow, of course. But, and also, the, the English were helpful in uh, opening up Volga trade, like the trade along the Volga River. There were also um, uh, Italian architects, and Billingdon mentions Danish uh, artillery personnel, in the battle for Kazan. And also during the Livonian War, Baltic Germans were moving into Muscovy. But, you know, Billy did also mentions that some of these were prisoners of war. And during the Livonian War, Muscovy needed allies. And Ivan the Terrible looked towards the, towards the Protestant powers that were emerging and who could provide um, military expertise and, and personnel. And Billington goes on to show, again, how the Livonian War opened up Muscovy to the West a little bit, not, not just in fighting, but also with interaction in other ways. Quote, the Livonian War provides the background of contradiction and irony. Again, here is talking about irony. Launched for astute economic and political reasons, the war was portrayed as a Christian crusade in much the same manner that the Livonian Order had once spoken of its forays with Russia. The Livonian Order was a Catholic crusading order that had attacked Russia before. To aid in fighting, this zealot of orthodoxy participated in a mixed Lutheran Orthodox church service, marrying his niece to a Lutheran Danish prince, whom he also proclaimed king of Livonia. At the same time, Ivan made strenuous, if pathetic, efforts to arrange himself for an English marriage. To aid in making peace, Ivan turned first to a Czech Protestant in the service of the Poles, and then to an Italian Jesuit in service of the Pope. Though antagonistic to both, Ivan found a measure of agreement with each by joining in the damnation of the other. He was, characteristically, hardest on the Protestants on whom he was most dependent, calling the Czech negotiator not so much as heretic as a servant of the Satanic Council of the Antichrists. So this is not really in the film. This is, this is a very interesting part, uh, going back to the film. Notice how Billington is talking about the irony between this 
Ivan's Ivan the Terrible's attitudes, who apparently hated Protestants more than Catholics. But there was this, so Billington is mentioning this xenophobia and fear of uh, Protestantism and Catholicism that Ivan had, yet he was giving land rights to English, to English merchants in, in Archangel. And also the Livonian War, yes, he's fighting Poland, he's struggling with Sweden in that war and for the Baltic, but that also opens up opportunities for Western, uh, Western experts to enter Muscovy and help him, right? And help Ivan the Terrible. And so this is that strange irony. But this is not portrayed in the film. There was um, a little bit about England being an ally, yes, but there's not really a whole lot. A lot of times the focus is on uh, the foreigners, is on the, is on the Poles or the, or the Tatars in Kazan. And that's the biggest, um, those are the biggest uh, references to foreigners, right? Or like foreigners being supporting treacherous boyars, right? So this is not really in the film. So, so that's why I don't quite buy the Renaissance interpretation of the film saying that this is about, the film is trying to uh, dismiss the myths about Moscovy being a, an Eastern barbaric state, right? So, but I did want to mention the history that... Muscovy did, in fact, have a lot of new connections with the Western world under Ivan the Terrible. So those are some of the possible interpretations of Ivan IV. We especially focused on the Stalinist interpretation, showing that Ivan the Terrible is a sort of a proto-Stalin. Uh, this is the interpretation that I personally subscribe to, that, you know, again, Ivan the Terrible and Stalin both had huge dictatorial states built around themselves, centralized power around themselves. Um, and also they both, there were many themes. There were, they had uh, real or and perceived threats both within their state, within their, their, their respective Russias. I think of it in this way, um, and Ivan the Terrible, he's not seen as a villain. So I don't see this as a criticism, even though uh, there are some ideas out there that uh, suggest that he was trying to subversively criticize the USSR at the time, or Eisenstein was trying to subversively uh, affirm the Soviet Union by focusing on the excess of, uh, of a coronation, uh, of Ivan IV's coronation. And, um, and then this idea of that Ivan IV or Ivan the Terrible is a, a film trying to show that Moscovy was much like any other Renaissance-era state, like like the Medici in Venice and also Elizabethan England, perhaps. So those, but the interpretation that I personally follow is that he's more, it's more of a Stalinist interpretation, right? Ivan IV is a, is a proto-Stalin, and, uh, and of course, look at the time. The, the first part of the film was released in January 1945. And then, um, and Stalin was also involved and commented a lot on that film. So that's what I think the film is. But, um, but it's, a, it's, it's an interesting film. I wouldn't say it's my favorite by any means. It's, you know, it's your typical 1940s film about history and you know sometimes over-the-top characters and so on so as a film it's not my favorite but it's interesting to look at it in the historical light as are so many other films well that's it for me today thank you so much for listening and i hope that all of you are doing well uh the world is a is a rough place sometimes with especially with corona and especially now with this war in ukraine all i can say is love love each other 
take care of each other and yourselves. As I always like to say, be healthy and, um, and be, the, be the best person you can be in, in, your, in your part of the world. And uh, with that, I will sign off and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.